This is Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi, two of the top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, one from California and one from Massachusetts, squaring off on legal news and legal observations. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams from sunny Southern California. And this is Bob Ambrogi from rarely sunny but always liberal Massachusetts. Uh, I write a blog called Law Sites, also a blog called Media Law and Legal Blog Watch for Law.com. And I write a blog called May It Please the Court. Bob, today we're going to be talking about uh, the stigma that sometimes attached to lawyers when they join the profession just for the money. Uh, well, in reality, there are lots of lawyers out there who are uh, giving back to their communities, whether it's through pro bono work locally or work they're doing on an international level or donating their time and money to help those in need through humanitarian efforts. So today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to discuss how attorneys are helping others overseas, and we'll be concentrating on those involved with human rights. We're going to discuss their work overseas, being an attorney from the States working in a different country, and helping others in need through the law. So let's introduce our guests, beginning with uh, our first guest today is Christina M. Storm. Christina is the founder and director of Lawyers Without Borders, a nonprofit international human rights organization whose goal is to create a global resource in legal pro bono services around the world. Uh, before becoming uh, involved with Lawyers Without Borders, Christina was a trial lawyer with a focus on family and employment discrimination defense work. Uh, now she largely uh, uh, handles uh, smaller matters for longstanding clients while, while focusing on Lawyers Without Borders. Uh, she joins us today from Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, welcome to the show, Christina. Thank you very much. We're honored to be here. Bob, our next guest is attorney Jerome J. Shestick our world leader in the international human rights movement. Uh, Mr. Shustick served as president of the International League for Human Rights for 20 years. He also served as U.S. ambassador to the United Nations Commission on Human Rights under President Jimmy Carter, and also as a member of the Conference on Security and Cooperation in Europe, and as well as a commissioner of the United States Presidential Congressional Commission to improve effectiveness of the U.N. under President Bush. Mr. Shustick has chaired international, the International Bar Association Standing Committee on Human Rights, and among his many other accolades and uh, experience, he's founded and was the first chair of the New York-based Lawyers Committee for Human Rights, known now as Human Rights First. He served as general counsel for Amnesty International in the United States, on the executive committee of the International Commission of Jurists, and as a counselor to the American Society of International Law. He's currently co-chairing the ABA's Human Rights Center, which he founded, and currently of counsel at Wolf, Block, Shore, and Solis Cohen out of the Philadelphia office. Welcome to the show, Attorney Shestak. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Well, there's a, there's a lot to cover today, but I wonder, uh, Christina, if we could just start with you and ask you to give us an overview of uh, how uh, Lawyers Without Borders got started and, and what its purpose is. Uh, actually, it got started quite by accident, and mostly uh, as I approached my 50th birthday out of my own search for pro bono opportunities in an international arena. And uh, I found that uh, finding them and uh, qualifying for them was very difficult, uh, and there were very few opportunities for the private practicing lawyer to, uh, to engage in whilst not abandoning their private practice. So after uh, weeks of uh, frustrating searches, um, I decided that I would contact Lawyers Without Borders and just submit my resume to them only when I uh, 
when I Googled it, the um, the uh, link came up. It said, would you like to buy the domain name? And uh, the rest is history. So, Jerry, let's turn to you for just a moment and uh, get a little bit of background uh, beyond your extensive resume. How did you fall into the human rights movement? Well, it's uh, kind of a long story. I guess I first started when I was at Harvard Law School, and they didn't admit women. And I thought that they should, and I started a little campaign going with the dean didn't like very much at all, told me to stick to my studies and not get into those kind of things. Eventually, Harvard did admit women. But uh, mainly I got started in the, during the Civil Rights uh, Revolution when President Kennedy formed the Lawyers Committee for Human Rights. I took some time off of my law practice to serve pro bono as its first executive director to involve lawyers in civil rights matters. Well, from there, it's kind of a natural progression into human rights, and I got involved uh, serving on the board of the International League for Human Rights and got uh, involved in various projects and missions and things like that. And human rights became a very important aspect of what I was doing. And when I was elected president of the American Bar Association, uh, that was one of my main programs, too, involving lawyers in human rights activities as well as other professional activities. The, uh, Jerry, when you, were, uh, when you were elected president of the ABA, uh, there was a profile of you written at the time that, that described you as the Pied Piper of Just Causes. Uh, I, I wonder, uh, does that suggest that, that you've been working to try and bring other lawyers uh, into international human rights work? Uh, and and what, what, are the, what kinds of opportunities are there for lawyers to get involved in this? Well, maybe it suggests I'm trying to bring all the rats that are around and get them dunked <laughs> in the ocean. But uh, lawyers uh, have really not been involved in pro bono matters as much as they should. If you go back in history, lawyers generally thought that, well, they were doing good enough for the community when they served clients. And there really was no pro bono uh, <clears throat> movement that existed until, I would say, the Roosevelt administration. And a lot of people came out of the New Deal were motivated by the uh, desire to uh, reform whole aspects of our society, and they started getting involved in civil rights, particularly in civil liberties, uh, things like the ACLU was involved in. Um, the international human rights area, uh, they were not involved. The fact of the matter is, of course, there really were no international human rights until the UN Declaration of Human Rights. There were some odd things, rights for prisoners and a few other things, but a full-fledged human rights movement and the details of what are involved in human rights started to take place with the UN Declaration of Human Rights in 1948 and then with all the covenants and treaties that were adopted afterwards. The first effort that lawyers really got into it were, I think, uh, the American Bar Association section of individual rights when I was chairing it tried to get the ABA to endorse the Genocide Convention. You wouldn't believe it now, perhaps, but for many years, the ABA refused to endorse the Genocide Convention. And that being so, the Senate said, well, if the lawyers won't endorse it, we're not even going to take it up. Finally, around the early 1970s, the ABA, because of the efforts of its section of individual rights, did endorse the Genocide Convention and then all the other main treaties, and they got started. Then the Lawyers Committee for Human Rights, which was co-chaired by Jim Silconat from New York and myself, 
uh, Jim, incidentally, is running for president of the ABA this year. Uh, we enlisted lawyers from New York primarily to handle asylum cases, go on missions to repressive countries like Argentina at the time, and engage in all sorts of human rights projects. And we enlisted actually uh, hundreds and maybe as many as thousands of lawyers in doing those projects. Most of that was based in New York or Washington. It's been very slow in other parts of the country, although Chicago, San Francisco, and Los Angeles, lawyers have turned to in those areas pretty well. Christina, you've uh, started this organization to provide some of the things that Jerry's been talking about. What kind of opportunities are available to lawyers, and where do you reach internationally? Lawyers have a, a, a host of opportunities available through us. Some of them who want to stay in their offices can do work helping NGOs and nonprofit organizations. Typically, we try to link internationally oriented organizations with business attorneys. We, uh, we provide long-term opportunities and short-term opportunities. The short-term opportunities tend to be trial observations um, in politically volatile places or in um, important human rights trials. Uh, two of them are ongoing now, one in Namibia and one in Ethiopia where we have circulated many lawyers in and out of both trials for, um, for observations ranging from one to two weeks to a month or longer. And uh, we do trainings, advocacy trainings, uh, which we're beginning to grow, defend the defender, trial advocacy in developing regions and regions emerging um, uh, from conflict. And in those instances, we can place a lawyer for, as a mission representative for up to six months or longer, or to assist in a training where the bulk of their work is done in America with a one-week visit to the country to actually implement and assist with the training. On our trainings, uh, our advocacy trainings, we're partnering with NIDA, who has uh, volunteered to provide us with all of the training materials at no cost and uh, made available to us NIDA trainers who work with our volunteer lawyers to uh, conduct the actual advocacy training. By NIDA, you mean the National Institute of Trial Advocacy? Correct. They just finished a training in Liberia. And so how would a lawyer go about getting involved? We have, uh, you can come to our website, or, which is actually the most efficient way, uh, basically to submit your CV and your letter of qualifications uh, indicating to us your ability to self-fund because when we bring lawyers into projects who are not affiliated with one of the large law firms that we tend to work very closely with, those lawyers come in on a self-funding basis unless we have a grant that can, tr can contribute to their costs uh, with a stipend attached to it. And uh, we evaluate your, your credentials through the online uh, submission process that we have at our website. If you're a lawyer working with one of the large firms that we work with, which are Sherman & Sterling, White & Case, McDermott, Will & Emery, Oryx, Sutcliffe & Harrington, and Aiken Gump, um, then uh, those, those lawyers would just go to their pro bono director, and uh, we have projects pretty much pending at all times with those firms, and, uh, and uh, they'll work for the law firm, and we'll place them in our projects. We're... we're are the, you know, I'm not sure trouble spots is the right word, but I mean, where are the areas of the world that, that you see a need for lawyers to be using their skills, whether it's as observers or, or as advocates? Um, what are some of the areas that you're really focusing on now? It, it, you know, we uh, the interesting thing about our work is that we don't actually go looking for places. It's more the, the model is the place comes looking for us. And uh, what's happening recently is a great deal of uh, attention to the areas in Africa, which are either systems, as in Liberia, trying to get on their feet, uh, Kenya trying to improve some of the uh, judicial delivery systems, or places like Ethiopia and Namibia, where there are very important human rights trials pending that are just um, where both parties, the government as well as the people, are begging for international observers to be there. 
Jerry, what are your, your thoughts on that? I mean, you've, you've had a, a lifetime of working on some of these issues. Well, there are a lot of sources where lawyers can go. For example, if you go to the Center of Human Rights, which is an ABA uh, organization, and say you want to volunteer, we'll you know, vet the person, and we send people out on missions to countries, whether it's a trial observer mission or just a, an investigatory mission. Various sections of the ABA do that, too, particularly the section of individual rights and the section of international law. All of those have websites. The Lawyers Committee for Human Rights, now called Human Rights First, is a leading organization, and they do a lot with getting lawyers for asylum projects and for various missions, including helping on trial observers. Uh, then there are traditional NGOs or leading ones like Human Rights Watch, which uses lawyers, not specially so. They use a lot of people who are non-lawyers on their missions, too. But uh, many of their uh, personnel and people whom they send on investigatory missions are lawyers, and they accept volunteers. They're located in New York, but they have offices in Washington and elsewhere. The International League, for example, uh, of which I was president, also has offices in Africa. And all of these organizations, if you just kind of look them up on the website, um, are available and welcome volunteers. Also today, there are pro bono uh, lawyers handling matters in law firms. Most large law firms have what is called a pro bono coordinator. My law firm has one, for example, Wolf Block in Philadelphia. If you go to that pro bono coordinator and you say you're interested in human rights, uh, she, in this particular case, will find all sorts of projects for you. And, of course, when NGOs call upon us and say they need lawyers, we circulate our lawyers and we try and find lawyers within our organization that we can get to volunteer. Most of them are trial lawyers. The tax lawyers and the business lawyers thinks, often think they don't have much to offer. That's not true, but there's a psychology there that has to be overcome. How are lawyers coming out of the United States perceived, and is it, real, is it necessary to qualify uh, to practice law in these foreign jurisdictions? It depends on the jurisdiction. Now, for example, I observed a trial in Northern Ireland, and uh, I had no problem going in there. You know, I did tell the authorities I was coming in. I did tell the court I was coming in, and uh, so they knew I wasn't uh, just a terrorist or somebody who uh, was not serious. Uh, and generally, that's what the ABA does on its trial observers. It gets in touch with the attorney general of the country and says, we'd like to observe the trial. Now, the problem is in some of these trials is they won't let you in to observe the trial. For example, right now there's a trial in Georgia uh, that we'd like to observe, but they won't allow trial observers into that trial. Um, then there are some countries, you know, it's not even worth trying. You know they're not going to let you in there. And then the other thing, that often these uh, human rights trials of advocates, they start it and then they stop it, and then they start it again and they stop it. So it involves a considerable amount of time by whoever is the observer. <clears throat> and part of that is a discouragement to observers coming in because of the huge amount of time that's involved. 
But you know, we don't try to get in secretly. We try and let the government know that they're being observed. In fact, the, the very fact that they are being observed sometimes makes the trial fairer than it otherwise might have been. Christina, how uh, has the reaction been? And I think I, there are some references to uh, you viewing some of the attorneys that have gone to the Middle East as uh, in some very in some very uh, unique situations. Well, actually, that was in the very early days of Lawyers Without Borders, and the only lawyer I sent to the Middle East was myself, um, because uh, we're very, very careful who we send where, and uh, and the, the uh, where there's a fair amount of risk, we, uh, as a rule, we don't allow lawyers to go. But um, we don't go to places we aren't welcome, really. Uh, I, I think the comments that were just made are pretty accurate. Uh, we disclose ourselves to governments. We, uh, at Lawyers Without Borders, we have a neutrality mandate, which is we are a non-positional, non-advocacy organization which governments usually view rather positively. We try to convince the governments that um, having us be there is really a credit to them, and, uh, and when we have a chance to sit down and talk to them, they are generally encouraged by that and open the doors to us in what might otherwise be a closed trial or a closed opportunity. And we also have a, a commitment to not talking to the press when we are in a country uh, or even after it uh, and keeping our reports confidential. We try to use the Red Cross model. Uh, the goal being that when everybody has had the door slammed on their face, Lawyers Without Borders wants to be the one that is allowed in because, as was just commented, there's a value to being there. Uh, so we haven't yet um, we haven't experienced any negativity by being in a country. We try to keep the risk low. We're always monitoring the situation on the ground. Uh, when things get uh, dicey, uh, we consider pulling our lawyers and bringing them back home. Um, we don't really think there's a, a, a large role for lawyers in an area where conflict is... Um, is present. And uh, I would say usually there has to be a cessation or very close to a cessation of conflict for us to be actively engaged in a region. Where, where does the financial support come, for, come from for your organization? It depends. Uh, some of, in some countries we are there with grants uh, by foundations and by uh, USAID or the United States Department of State or independent foundations. We also have a fair amount of really generous support that's coming in from the larger law firms which helps support our operations. And um, the law firms that work with us all pay all of the expenses associated with their own lawyers. So uh, that isn't an expense to the organization. Uh, a very small amount of our support comes from private individuals. Are you uh, affiliated in any way with the other uh, without borders organizations around the world? None of them. None of them. We are a totally independent uh, organization, uh, affiliated with none, including the uh, Belgian organization that uh, sometimes use our name, Avocat Sans Frontier. What kinds of uh, skill sets are you looking for? In, I mean, Jerry mentioned that a lot of the lawyers uh, who end up getting involved in this work are, are trial lawyers. Some of them are, are uh, organizational lawyers. I mean, is, is there a right kind of a lawyer and a wrong kind of a lawyer for volunteering for your organization? Well, when we're talking about a trial observer, <clears throat> we obviously want someone who's had a good amount of trial experience. Language is desirable, but we will provide translators, too, if it's a country where the language is not known. If we can find a lawyer who knows the language, so much the better. But basically, we have training courses, and we want lawyers who are skilled trial lawyers, because otherwise their observation doesn't amount to very much if they're amateurish on it. With respect to other matters, like an asylum case or an investigation, there you don't need that particular skill. You merely want someone who's well-motivated, has integrity, and uh, the right type of uh, interest. 
Well, Christina, I'm a member of Lawyers Without Borders. At least at one time I was. I'm not sure I'm currently a dues-paying member. But uh, for those lawyers and the listeners of ours who are not part of big firms, how would they plug into your organization and get involved? And what kind of skill sets are you looking for from them? It depends upon the project, but basically the, the, the approach we take is a very team-oriented approach. The group that just came back from Liberia involved a retired lawyer who was there as a mission rep for the first four months, another lawyer who was not in retirement but had 30 years' experience as a prosecuting attorney, retired from being a prosecutor, um, who spent the next four months there helping us with the preparations and negotiations with the Minister of Justice, the actual training pro- program had uh, two federal court judges, one district court, one circuit, uh, four, five lawyers from the large firms, and the mission representative, the private practicing attorney, who had been helping us with the lead-up work. Uh, the post program involved two young law graduates who were helping us circulate the evaluations and elicit the feedback and arranging the community outreach component of the project. And one of the lawyer, young lawyer trainers from the big firm will be back for the whole month of October to basically wrap the project up. So it is very much of an approach involving a host of different lawyers. Uh, we had criminalists, because it was a criminal advocacy training program, involved as the chief lead trainers, but uh, the lawyers who were assisting the trainers, um, who had uh, only a, a, a modicum amount of experience in the criminal sector, but nevertheless were very, could be very useful as assistant trainers, uh, where their number two man, where every major trainer had an assistant. So we, we, um, the goal is to, you know, in some parts of Africa, the needs are basic and comprehensive, and uh, you don't need to have 30 years of criminal trial experience to be a very useful assistant to a chief trainer uh, for a trial training program. And, uh, and we think giving these younger lawyers or these possibly less experienced lawyers the opportunity to partner up and team up uh, or be part of a team um, brings a, a very valuable set of skills to them, uh, particularly if they're the kind of lawyer who have uh, the situation that will permit them to leave the country and go in-country for a month or longer. Uh, one of the things I wanted to add is that uh, we work pretty closely with other bar associations. The American Bar Association works with the International Bar Association and the IUE, the, which is essentially a, a uh, French uh, <clears throat> uh, 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 of French lawyers, and they're very cooperative. They also provide recruits, and they often provide the avenue into a country. In most countries, the bar association, even if it's repressed, is more liberal than the government itself. So, to the extent that we can evolve a local bar association in our efforts, so much the better. We're, we're going to uh, take a, we need to take a short break right now just to uh, hear a few words from our sponsors. And uh, when we return, we can re- continue the discussion on this and give you an opportunity to offer some final thoughts. We invite you to visit Law.com for timely legal news and in-depth resources. From daily headlines to practice-specific updates, Law.com provides up-to-date information to those working in the legal profession. As part of its coverage, Law.com is proud that J. Craig Williams' blog, May It Please the Court, and Robert Ambrogi's blog, Law Sites, are part of its blog network. Don't wait any longer. Visit Law.com today and get free subscriptions of our Newswire newsletter with the top legal stories of the day. Or sign up for a free trial subscription to one of our Practice Center sections. If you found us in the podcast library of iTunes, thanks for listening. Check out some of our other shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com and become a member. It's free. 
Lawyer to Lawyer is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. If you have a comment or question, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message on the Legal Talk Network listener line at 781-634-8959. We really do listen to the messages and even answer your questions on our next show. Did you know that Legal Talk Network podcasts are also available at CLE? Visit Law.com's CLE Center at www.clecenter.com. That's CLECenter.com to enjoy listening and get CLE credit. Check out our Lawyer to Lawyer host blogs, J. Craig Williams' blog at mayofpleasereport.com, likewise Robert Ambrogi's blog at LegalLine.com for daily legal observations, perspective, and, of course, a healthy dose of humor and wit. A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years' experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi. And I'm Craig Williams. Back with us is Christina Storm, founder and director of Lawyers Without Borders, and attorney Jerry Shustick, a trial attorney and world leader in the international human rights movement. Well, as we uh, wrap up our program here, uh, Christina, there's been some instances where Lawyers Without Borders has been uh, called into question. Well, why don't we let you handle that and address those issues? Uh, apparently, the Wall Street Journal ran an article not too long ago that uh, talked about the partnering program that we have or the um, uh, working with the major law firms and their pro bono departments to engage them or to bring opportunities to them uh, of the uh, international pro bono variety and uh, what they our our work with the larger law firms our work with everybody that comes to lawyers without borders is not a where a, a mere linking process where we merely connect two entities. We are very much engaged in the development of the projects, the oversight of the projects, and the management of the projects. So the work that we do with the firms, um, um, I find myself traveling around the world, visiting the firms, visiting the lawyers. Uh, We have every project we have has paid positions for lawyers to manage the lawyers. And um, when we bring a team together, uh, we tap into whatever that firm's best skill sets are. And if one lawyer at a large firm is not expert and we need one, we can pretty safely rely on the fact that that lawyer will become an expert and uh, handle his pro bono work with the same clarity and intensity that they handle their private work. So um, the misleading factor was giving the impression that what Lawyers Without Borders does, for the larger firm anyway, is simply connect them to projects or plug them into cases, and uh, very, very misleading. Um, We we, uh, were fortunate to be able to work very closely with the lawyers, the partners, the associates, and the pro bono directors of these firms and uh, basically grow together in understanding how we can 
take their resources and our knowledge of the human rights arena, uh, put them together to deliver, um, to deliver services to our colleagues in developing regions. Here's the way uh, I kind of look at it uh, as uh, from a viewpoint of the American Bar Association or as a bar leader. I think today the legal profession has a great deal of problems in that it's become <clears throat> more of a business than a profession, and various of the ideals of a profession have been forgotten in search for the bottom line. Uh, very often when I interview a young lawyer who wants to go into our firm or some other project, I say, why did you become a lawyer? And invariably they say, well, we wanted an opportunity to give something back, to do something useful. But then they get into practice and the ardor of practice and its demands uh, overcomes them and they don't spend the time or they can't do it or they can't afford it. So one of the things we're trying to do is enlarge our pool, make lawyers conscious that they have an obligation to do something in the pro bono area. Human rights is one of the major pro bono areas, but there are others as well. So it's not only exhorting law firms, but practitioners all over. And I think that's one of the main objectives of the American Bar, which has 420,000 members, is to enlarge the people who are out there wanting to do some public good. Christina, in order to motivate some of the people, I think uh, I'd like to hear, or we'd like to hear maybe a personal story about an accomplishment that either Lawyers Without Borders or you personally feel that was something that uh, encouraged you to continue to do the work that you're doing and, and really made a difference. Oh, gosh, there are so many stories. Uh, there are two stories, one for the lawyers and, and one for the pro bono. And the story for the lawyer was a senior partner at one of the largest firms in the world who reported to me after spending the last year uh, working on a matter for us that it was, uh, at, uh, at some 65 years old, the most rewarding experience he'd ever had in his life. Uh, that certainly brought me a huge amount of satisfaction, knowing that, that it was that same feeling I was searching for seven years ago when I founded Lawyers Without Borders. Uh, in terms of um, the most recent event that has brought us uh, satisfaction as an organization was that uh, there was a trial we're observing in Africa. And uh, as I'm sure my colleague knows, these trials in Africa um, last for years and years and years. It has been ongoing for seven or eight years. And for the first time, uh, we have been there for the last um, three quarters of a year. And uh, the charges were uh, dropped, and two of the defendants who have been in jail for seven years were released and sent home by the court. And uh, we really felt that our presence at that trial uh, compelled the court to take a serious look at the um, legitimacy of the charges against these individuals. And uh, for the first time, uh, literally in the history of that court, um, in the middle of the trial, uh, the court had dismissed charges against two of the defendants. So, so uh, sometimes trial observation is a question of being there. And uh, we, have, we are very comfortable that to the extent we can accomplish more, that's wonderful, to the extent that we can be there and make a difference by being there. Um, we have, and uh, we hope to continue to do the same. Jerry, is there a, is there a story from your career that you feel kind of... Uh... I think what Christina said is exactly what I would say, uh, certainly as far as the satisfaction goes. I think the people who've been involved in these human rights projects and other significant pro bono projects derive a tremendous feeling of satisfaction, a feeling that they've done something worthwhile that really justifies their being a lawyer. And I get that time after time after time. More people realize that I think we would have more volunteers. As um, 
far as personal stories, there are lots of them, whether it's a visit to Ireland or a visit to uh, some of the troublesome Mideast Mideast area or prisons in the Mideast. I don't think we have the time to do that. But I can tell you that every experience reinforces your feeling that you're doing something that makes you being a lawyer really worthwhile. Well, it's time for us to just about wrap up our program. So what we'd like to do is offer both of you the opportunity to uh, wrap up and give your final thoughts and also to provide our listeners your contact information so that they can get in touch with you and uh, in both cases volunteer if, they, if they'd like to. And uh, so, Christina, let's go with you first. And uh, specifically, one of the things that has occurred to me during the program is that I wondered whether you're looking for assistance from law schools and from law students and law professors. Uh, well, actually, we have a program we call CLEARS, Creating Legal Accessibility and Resources with Law Students. Uh, the international world loves acronyms, and we're getting very good at them. But we, uh, we've integrated several law schools working with us on almost all of our projects. We have a program right now assisting us with research on Namibia with the University of Toronto Law School. We have a program in Latin America where we have several students at New York Law School working with us. Um, and we have a, uh, we're going just about to have a, a program launching next week with the University of Connecticut's Law School. So we're, we're very geared up. We view the law student as a very integral part of growing the culture of pro bono and uh, engaging them now. Uh, and, and uh, encouraging the law students to go to, uh, to, to go to law firms and to develop the skills that we can then export into our projects. Um, in terms of Lawyers Without Borders, we have no shortage of lawyers volunteering and we have no shortage of opportunities for them. The only shortage we have are the resources to manage and oversee and develop, continue to develop those opportunities. So we are launching a 365 campaign, we call it, which is we're trying to recruit 3,000 people, preferably lawyers, to each uh, commit to a dollar a day for one year, which will raise $1 million plus, and that will sustain our operations for, believe it or not, two years. We operate on a very slim budget over here. And, uh, and uh, so we would, uh, we'd appreciate anybody in the audience uh, who wants to uh, step up to the, to the uh, plate and, and be one of our um, dollar a day donors uh, to do so. You can learn more about Lawyers Without Borders at www.lwob.org. We have a place there where you can upload your CV, where you can sign up for our newsletter. Uh, if you uh, want to really uh, uh, ratchet things up, you can just give me a call personally at the office, 860-541-2288, extension 14. And Jerry, your final thoughts and your contact information. Well, in terms of addresses, I'll give you the address of the American Bar Association Center for Human Rights. And uh, uh, I don't have the exact address before me, but it's just easily anyone can find it and find the ABA's webpage. But the point I'd like to make is something different. All the things that Christina said about recruiting and satisfaction are important. But basically, I think what is involved here is a view of what is this society going to look like? Uh, human rights, after all, is really the basis of a civil society. Uh, if you look at what a just rule of law is, it involves human rights. If you look at peace, it involves human rights. It's essentially respect for the individual dignity and worth. And if somehow you can get people to thinking, why are we human beings and what does humanity mean? What does it mean to be a human being? And what is the value of individual worth and autonomy? Those are the philosophic issues that everyone has got to solve 
and become part of their own culture before we can have widespread human rights. It's a constant battle. We're attacking all of the various diseases, but the essential battle is to change the philosophy of the world to where people recognize the value of individual worth and dignity. That website for the ABA Center for Human Rights is at abanet.org slash human rights. Right. Well, thank you very much to both of our guests today, uh, Christina Storm, founder and director of Lawyers Without Borders, and Jerry Shestak of Wolf Block in Philadelphia. We really appreciate your time and your thoughts. Uh, thanks for being with us today. Christina, get in touch with me. I'd love to talk some about some joint projects. Uh, actually, we work with, with the ABA on quite a few, but I'm happy to chat with you about doing more. And uh, thank you both for giving us the opportunity to get the word out there. Thank you. Bob, always a pleasure. We'll talk with you again next week. Good to talk to you, Craig. Yeah. Thanks. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks again for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.